Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. This is Charles Marshall on the West Coast Foreclosure Show. It is July 19th, 2018, and Neil will be back next week. And I am broadcasting live from San Diego, California, and I have with me uh, this afternoon... And uh, as we sometimes say, good afternoon to those of you in the West, and good evening to those of you in the East. I have with me Bill Padalo, and always appreciated having you on the show, Bill. Welcome. Hi, Charles. Good to be here. How are you? Great. So for those of you who had an opportunity to review the topic for today's show, I'm very pleased to be able to to break down some of the basics on two recent favorable foreclosure decisions. Now, these are judicial foreclosure cases. A lot of times we will discuss on this show non-judicial foreclosure cases since California and actually almost the entire Ninth Circuit of states all these states are overwhelmingly non-judicial foreclosure states. Though Oregon is, is moving and has a, a track, so to speak, of more than a few judicial foreclosure uh, actions. Hawaii is a judicial foreclosure state. In fact, Hawaii is the only judicial foreclosure state in the Ninth Circuit. And these two decisions that came out on June 27th of this year. They're appellate decisions, and I'm quite happy to do a shout-out for Gary Dubin. He's the attorney in both the underlying case matters and the associated appeal. Now, before we get underway with further uh, details here, I am reminding everyone that the show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lives, and LendingLives.com. And it is made possible because of donations. <clears throat> it's made possible because of donations from listeners like you. I thank you. Neil thanks you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated 
and you can donate directly on the blog by selecting the donate button right there at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. You can also donate through calling area code 951-451-1230. Now, back to our two uh, foreclosure wins, I'm going to call these. They are back at the lower court. And based on the underlying procedural and now appellate history, I think these are cases that really line up quite favorably for the borrowers here. Uh, The two decisions are called U.S. Bank Trust versus Scrantz. That's the short case title. And Bank of New York Mellon versus St. John. Again, those are short case titles. Now, what's interesting about both these decisions, apart from coming out on the same day, apart from well-highlighting the skill set that Gary Dubin brings to his foreclosure legal practice in Hawaii, they are based on a Hawaii Supreme Court case short title, Bank of America versus Reyes Toledo. Now, these are really companion orders. I mean, a lot of the legal language is similar between the two appellate cases, and the legal analysis is quite similar. The the reviewing court in both cases, it's called the Intermediate Court of Appeals for the state of Hawaii, that reviewing court references specifically, in fact, says that the Reyes Hawaii Supreme Court decision is dispositive on the issues on appeal. And the following issues and the following findings, so to speak, which you know can, can be essentially framed as a holding, but I'm, I'm going to get at the details here you know, as usual, we have a 30-minute time frame for this show. So without getting into too much detail, the fundamentals of the Reyes case that were relied on by the appellate court in these two cases, again, both, both the Schrantz case and the St. John case, what Reyes said was, and Reyes, of course, is a Supreme Court decision for Hawaii, and it's published. Unsurprisingly, these two Hawaii cases are unpublished. It's that they that they are both based, however, on a, a published case, and according to the court, dispositively. I think it's it's okay that they're not published. However, looking back to Reyes, the published decision, basically what what was found in Reyes is that. At the time of the foreclosure lawsuit, remember these are judicial foreclosure lawsuits in Hawaii, the purported plaintiff claiming to have legal title, claiming to have legal interest, needs to actually be in possession of the promissory note at issue at the time of filing the lawsuit. And in both of these cases, 
in both these cases, Schrantz and St. John, it's clear that the U.S. Bank Trust in the one and the, the other one, uh, Bank of New York Mellon, that's the St. John one, in both those cases, the, the plaintiff doesn't show up with a proper a representation that they have the note. And both these cases went to <clears throat> motions for summary judgment, meaning procedurally that the plaintiffs in those cases brought a motion for summary judgment. They did that to avoid having to take the case to trial, which, of course, since it's a judicial foreclosure, they would have had to do so otherwise. And they both prevailed at the motion for summary judgment stage. The reason these cases were both reversed, and, and I must say they were both reversed in a resounding way when you read the legal opinions, they were, they were reversed vis-a-vis the Reyes findings and holdings. Which, which essentially is when you come into court in Hawaii, you are trying to foreclose on a specific borrower connected to a specific piece of property. You have to show the bona fides of the mortgage contract, and an essential element of that type of showing is that you demonstrate that you, plaintiff, are in possession, actual possession of the note. Now, how would you demonstrate that? You would demonstrate it either at the time of the filing of the complaint, which, again, is being required here. And I think that's a very important point to mention again. And let's say that at the time of the summary judgment motion, you provide even more evidence and documentation. But, again, one of the reasons the court reversed here is because they rightly found that it's not good enough to show up with something to the motion for summary judgment that's many months, sometimes years deep into the case. In this case, it was months. Regardless, you have to be able to, to show that at the time you filed the complaint, you had possession of the note. And, of course, there were declarants that these institutional trusts had essentially, well, they used them to show what they're going to claim is proper providence. They used them to show that what would otherwise apply the hearsay rule. And, of course, Hawaii, the Hawaii evidence code is very similar to other state evidence codes all around the country. The, the, the documents at issue here are presumptively hearsay. They need to be authenticated, and they're typically authenticated through the business records exception. Now, here... Uh, Rather than giving an easy pass, the appellate court is holding the proper standard for the business records exception to apply. The declarant, the party essentially acting on behalf of the institutional trust, they need to show that they had real specific knowledge of the documents at issue, that it was an essential job function of theirs, to essentially have an expertise in reviewing those documents, that they actually reviewed the document at issue here and that they made certain declaring representations previously based on that review. 
there are huge gaps, there are huge missing aspects in both these cases. And the missing aspects are actually quite similar, even though these cases and these, these uh, parties, for the most part, really have very little to do with each other. So one takeaway that we're, we're, we're trying to provide on this show right now is, and I'm bringing Bill in to discuss this, okay, these cases got appealed and they won on appeal because of the strong lower record that was preserved, including some serious discovery. Now, Bill, in your experience, how can, and this is going to be specific to judicial foreclosure in a way, but I'm going to say how this can also apply in a non-judicial context. However, before we get there, explain to the listeners how a deposition can be used to create the problems that these declarants had in trying to show that they really were speaking intelligently and knowingly about about their declaration. Sure. Well, first, um, when you look at this U.S. Bank trust case, which has my uh, uh, LSF9 entity that we've talked a lot about um, on on previous shows, I've been doing a lot of research on that entity. Um, One of the salient points that's brought up um, is talking about the witness not having uh, any knowledge about uh, the custodial history of the note. And I think there lies the, the critical point in all of these cases. It's the common denominator uh, with any witness who's providing declarations, affidavits, or deposition testimony that uh, that I've been following or reading ever since I've been doing this. There has not been, uh, that I can recall, any witness who is speaking on behalf of the custodian of the record. So I think, you know, the fact that jurisdiction standing was uh, invoked here and overturned because they did not prove they had custody of the original note at the time they filed the complaint. I think that's, that is a, um, a very common fact in just about every one of these cases that, uh, that we're seeing or that we're talking about here. Um, and so one of the things that I'm starting to see um, in some depositions, and I'm going to be, uh, there's, there's a case that I can't really get into the specifics of, or I can't really mention anything about <clears throat> the jurisdiction, where it is, or anything of that nature. I can only speak of it um, generically. Um, but we, are through counsel, and I was assisting counsel in the deposition, uh, sent a 30B6 notice uh, to the witness, uh, most knowledgeable for the servicer, and it's a it's a well-known servicer these days um and that witness it it comes to light um in this deposition as we started to drill down that she essentially um claims to be an employee of the servicer yet she only really goes into the office of the servicer maybe uh, four times a year and she actually lives uh several hours away from the offices what she kind of implies in her testimony is that she she carries a laptop with her and she's sort of a uh she she was a little hesitant to say that she's a contractor but that's kind of what it sort of alludes to but she testifies that not only did she not review the documents that were 
uh, asked of her to provide under the 30B6 notice. That was all produced by the attorneys. But she only spent tops, uh, I'm talking thousands of documents in this case, that were produced, that she spent maybe two hours reviewing those documents. And when it came time to um, address some of the issues regarding the title and chain of title and all of that sort of thing, she simply uh, calls into a supervisor and is uh, coached on what to say and what to, you know, in the, in the trial testimony or deposition testimony. So um, I think what we're seeing, not just in this particular case, but others that I'm uh, involved in, is that um, most of these witnesses, they don't have any proper foundation of training. Okay, now training was a mandated issue when you look back at the consent judgments that were signed back in 2012 for the unsafe, unsound practices. In fact, there's language that they all signed on to the servicers saying that uh, they shall have standards for qualifications, training, and supervision of the employees. I'm kind of reading one of the lines in the uh, consent judgment. But it also says each uh, such employee shall sign a certification that he or she has received the training. All right. Now, we've begun to ask for these witnesses' certification letters that they've gone through any training uh, per the requirements of the consent judgment. And as of today, I have not seen them comply or respond or even uh, show up with any of their certified training. Okay, So uh, going back to the custodial history, um, there's a huge problem here because there isn't a witness at the end of the day who not only can really speak to the uh, business records of prior servicers um, because of training issues or whatnot, or there's been so many changes in servicers over the years intentionally or whatnot, but there is no one who can set forth. And I think in uh, many of these courts now are starting to, to come back at these uh, plaintiffs and say, who's the custodian? I want to hear from the custodian. Uh, I want to know, uh, especially if, and I think everybody's got to get to the heart of that in, in the, um, the questioning, the line of questioning and the depositions or whatnot, because, um, again, they, they, they simply don't have it. Um, now, when you talk about this LSF-9, so I'll segue just a little bit on that entity. As I've talked about this entity before, First of all, the LSF-9 Master Participation Trust is not even a trust. It's not an entity. It's just simply an agent. And, uh, and we are, I'm continuing to see in cases that I'm called into with this, more and more conflicting documents that they are coming into uh, claiming that these are the operative trust agreements and PSAs and so on and so forth, and they're all inconsistent and different. What I'm now starting to believe especially um, Bank of America is in this case where they're saying they couldn't trace the note uh, or show that uh, Bank of America had it to transfer. Um, I'm Based on all of the redacted documents and the things that um, they're producing into courts is that not only are they admitting they're buying distressed assets, but I think somewhere in all the blacked out documentation, uh, the language exists to, to, to show that one, it's very likely that the that insurance carriers had their hand in on paying off these debts and required the relinquishment of the original notes, and are probably, if they existed, were were put um, 
uh, into the hands of whoever those parties are. Um, but I'm having case after case now with LSF 9 where in the late stages of litigation, the judges are uh, – chastising the plaintiff's attorneys. Um, I have a case, uh, there's one in uh, Connecticut and one in federal court in Montana, where the judge is saying, at this late stage, uh, counsel, are you telling me you don't know if your client has the original note? And they can't answer that question. In fact, uh, in one, I have an audio recording of a federal case in Montana where the judge chastises the attorney saying, listen, we've been going in, in this proceeding for a long time, and now you're telling me you don't know if your client has the original note. Well, he said, I, I can't answer that question. All I know is they gave me a PDF. Well, that was inconsistent with the testimony that uh, the original was sent via Caliber, the servicer, to the attorney's office via FedEx. Okay, so there's some conflicting, you know, testimony there. But I think, uh, again, going back to attacking this stuff in discovery, um, you will find that um, there isn't a custodial history of any of these notes claimed to be the original. Now, uh, I had heard Neil, and maybe you have some information. Um, from a legal perspective about the importance of being able to show that chain of custody um, from a custodial standpoint. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think in a judicial foreclosure context, these Hawaii decisions line up even now, even at this kind of what seems like a late hour in the, in the uh, foreclosure mess of all these years, that they line up well with, I think, law that's still presidential and has value in places like uh, New York, Massachusetts, Florida. Again, all judicial foreclosure case uh, states. Um, and the, the, the nub of it, though, is that these should apply in a non-judicial foreclosure state as well. Uh, but far too many judges and far too many proceedings in California have essentially allowed what are institutional defendants and the, non, the non-judicial foreclosure lawsuits that the borrower plaintiffs bring, they've all too often allowed them, the defendants, to, to, to finesse away the requirement to show that they possess the note. And it's almost as if it's it's seen as some non-element of of the essential facts and law that have to be established in the case. And there's a lot of relying on the non-judicial foreclosure framework being essentially a uh, a final word, even on the the issues of standing and on the issues of the institutional, in this case, defendants' right to go through with the non-judicial foreclosure. And the the words that are so often used in these rulings are that the the non-judicial foreclosure legal framework, sometimes even unironically called a scheme is 
is essentially uh, comprehensive and presumptively valid. Well, even to the extent that something's considered presumptively valid in a law setting, that means that it can be rebutted. That means that it's a, effectively a rebuttable presumption. And, of course, it's the purpose of these non-judicial foreclosure lawsuits to rebut those presumptions. I, I think well, the end of the one, day, one thing to note, uh, you know, as we're getting close on the uh, half-hour mark here, though, is that sure. many of these witnesses, they're testifying that they're looking at the servicing system platform and that they actually observe multiple versions and copies of the note within the systems. Now, we talked a little bit on one of the last shows uh, that we were together on about asking who has the authoritative copy, okay? Even if, even if they can't attest to that document being the so-called original, um, if they're looking in that system and they're seeing that uh, the, there are multiple passing from electronic custodians and whatever the, the MSP system, whatever system they're using is showing them, when they talk about multiple versions of the note, some have endorsements, some have allonges, some do, some don't, whatever, which one is the authoritative copy? I mean, I, I, a long time ago in my research of J.P. Uh, Morgan Chase's servicing uh, training manuals for foreclosure situations, they actually teach their employees uh, back in the early days, and it's probably still the same, but they would say, if you look in the system and you see multiple versions of the so-called original note, just grab the one with the most endorsements. Okay, <laughs> So when you start to ask them, you will find in most every one of these cases that there are multiple, multiple versions of the copy of the note, and you have to specifically ask. And when we're asking, which one's the authoritative copy of the so-called original? They can't explain that question. They don't even know what they're talking about when you say, what's the authoritative copy? How do they know which copy is the right one? The one, I mean, and so that's how you start to kind of box them in because the, the, the million-dollar question for these witnesses when they say, this is the original note, we're holding the original note, and you say, is it possible is it possible that the original note was destroyed? And the response is typically, well, anything's possible, or, yeah, it's, it could be, yeah, it's possible. Well, if it's possible, then how are you sitting here testifying that that's the original note, you know, uh, under oath and penalty of perjury, when you, you're already admitting there's a possibility it doesn't exist? And that, that raises another evidentiary principle called the best evidence rule. And again, it's, it's heartening to see, even if it's in judicial foreclosure states, unlike California, and it's not to say judicial foreclosures don't happen here, they just happen very infrequently. Uh, nevertheless, it's heartening to see that the business records exception is actually being held to a high standard. And that's encouraging in these two Hawaii cases. Would that similar... Uh, similar fidelity to the business records exception show up in cases elsewhere. Um, in terms of the best uh, evidence rule, if you don't have the original, uh, that can be and should be sometimes an evidentiary burden that you can't even get by. And we're, we're used to, to allowing copies, in fact, similes and other media representation to act as a stand-in, but the best evidence rule has a number of requirements. 
that essentially are used to vet specific evidence and specific authentication related to the documented issue. And you have to be able to verify the, uh, the what amounts to the substituted uh, copy of, of the original. And when you're dealing with such important matters as a major mortgage, having the original is a very reasonable standard to hold a, uh, a declarant to. Uh, so thank you again, Bill, for being with me today on uh, what's really Neil's show, but I very much appreciate having this West Coast version of the show. And Neil will be back next week. And, uh, Bill, I will look forward to having you on again as well. Well, th thanks, Charles. If I still have a quick sec, uh, I just want to let everyone know I have a new phone number for my office uh, as I'm in transition moving a bit. So it's one 888 5820961 and that's on my website as well. So if anyone has got an old number and can't reach me, um uh please look at the website and see the new listing as my number has changed. Okay, excellent, Bill. Until next time. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.